Time for short play. Alex, last year, Vision Church in Atlanta hired a psychic medium to their ministerial staff who argues that communication with the dead should be counted as a spiritual gift, citing James 1, verse 17. Hey, I just want to know, is Lake Phelan planning on any unique hires in the future? You know what, Nick? Why would I hire a medium? If I want to contact the dead, I can use my trusty Ouija. Oh. I mean, um, oh. my my angel board. Oh, okay. I can use my angel board to summon my spirit guide. Mm-hmm. And if all else fails, I still have my tarot. I mean, uh, uh. my uh, my angel cards. Oh. I have my angel cards for most of my divination needs. These are good gifts from God, right? Well, this is sorted by. <laughs> <laughs> and we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, we're going to be looking at James chapter 1. That's right. And as usual, we'll do a brief introduction, who wrote it, who was it written to, occasion and purpose, that kind of thing. And then we'll jump into chapter 1. And so we got a lot to cover today, Nick. James chapter 1, as always, who wrote the letter of James, and which James, perhaps, would this be referring to? So one count says that there are eight different men named James in the New Testament. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on James, whittles the potential author list down to four men. Yet James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John, who is an apostle. You have James, son of Alphaeus, who is another apostle, who happens to be named James. You have James, the father of the other Judas, who was an apostle, not Judas Iscariot. And then you have James, the Lord's half-brother. Of the four, only the son of Zebedee and the Lord's brother stand out as prominent, at least prominent enough to have been able to write an epistle of importance and weight, and then to have it gain acceptance in the church. So I am persuaded that um, this is James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. Mm. Um, although he was a skeptic during Jesus's ministry, you can read about that in Mark chapter three, verse one, seven, uh, John seven, verse uh, five. He has a post-resurrection appearance from Christ. We read about that in First Corinthians fifteen and verse seven. He becomes a disciple, and he finds prominent position in the Jerusalem church. Uh, and we can read about that in the book of Acts, uh, chapter twelve, verse seventeen, chapter fifteen, verse thirteen, chapter twenty-one, verse eighteen. And so James, half brother of Jesus. Uh, That's where I land. Uh, There's uh, an argument in the early church uh, that holds to this view as well. They agree that James, the Lord's half-brother, is the author of the epistle we have that is uh, known as James. So that's my take on it. Alex, you say? You know, Nick, there's an interesting note on the early church view. Uh, Eusebius, in his ecclesiastical history, he considers the epistle of James to be written by James the Just the brother of the Lord, or half-brother, but also, at one point in his writings, he considers that particular epistle, in its authenticity, he considers it disputed. Hmm. Um, You can read about that in uh, Ecclesiastical History uh, 2.23.22. No one's probably going to look that up, so just... Believe me, I read it. That's what it says. Disputed also doesn't mean false, though. It didn't mean uh, don't read it or it's uh, completely spurious. That was a different category. Disputed in Eusebius' writings, that means that um, if you uh, you look at the book of James, you can know that it's 
has a wide acceptance. It's been it's broadly known among the church. It's read among the church, uh, but it just doesn't have a universal acceptance. There are still some people who don't accept it completely. And I think Eusebius was one of those people who kind of had some doubts about it, about its authenticity. But eventually, as you said, it does gain full acceptance um, by all of the church. So that's that's the book of James, early church view. I, I land on that. I think that makes sense. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, and considering um, the prominence he had uh, in Jerusalem and the audience who he appears to write to, this is going to make the most sense, in my opinion. Now, Nick, uh, every letter was written for a reason. Mm-hmm. What do you think was the occasion and purpose for this particular letter? I like what, and again, I already cited Douglas Moo in his commentary, but I like what he says in his uh, commentary. He says, like a modern church official or bishop addressing an open letter to his parishioners, James has used the epistolary form to bring spiritual exhortations and comfort to Christians living in a broad area. You know, the church must live in the world, though we're not to be of the world. Jesus acknowledges this, John 17, verse 15. And so James's concern is for these Christians to live steadfast lives of faith through uh, fiery trials, through intense trials. And even though those trials come upon them, they are still to live uh, steadfast lives of faith. Uh, but James is also concerned, it seems, just in uh, the reading of the book of James, that the world has infiltrated the church. And so he writes to exhort these Christians to live lives of purity and lives of blamelessness. Both steadfastness and purity will produce maturity in the faith. And that is what James seeks from his readers, is steadfastness and purity leading to maturity in faith. That's what I see here as purpose and, and occasion. Alex, what do you think? You know, just drawing a few things out of the text, uh, the occasion, it seems there are various trials upon them all. You get that in verse 2. Uh, perhaps under the stress of these trials, the Christians are not treating each other very well. Uh, there seems to be quarrels, chapter 4, verse 1. They are speaking against one another, chapter 1, verse 26, chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 11. And there especially seems to be hostility between the rich and poor Christians. You get that in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, chapter 2, verses 1 and following, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now, in the meantime, while all these disputes are going on, the most vulnerable among them, apparently, are being ignored. That would be the orphans and widows, chapter 1, verse 27. So I think that's the occasion if we want to try to draw some things out from the letter. Uh, The purpose, then, would be to endow the Christians with heavenly wisdom, which will restore peace to the suffering community. Uh, You get this idea from chapter 1, verse 5, verse 17, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, and that dialogue comparing heavenly wisdom to earthly wisdom. And so hopefully this will save those who are in error and in need of repentance. That's how James ends the entire letter, is if a brother has gone astray, he's in error, you bring him back, save his soul, cover a multitude of sins. That's chapter 5, verse 20. So occasion and purpose there, Nick. Um, What about the timing, though? This is related to the occasion and purpose. When do you think the letter of James was written? So the definitive time limit for final composition of the epistle of James is right around 62 uh, AD when he's martyred. 
so can't have it after that because he's dead. Um, some <laughs> believe this is uh, one of the earliest New Testament writings dating back to before uh, the Jerusalem Conference. You read about in Acts 15. And the date for the Jerusalem Conference about uh, A.D. 50, or right around there. And so uh, they reason from that the fact that there's there's not a lot of Jewish or any Jewish references to Gentile Christians, uh, any references to Jewish Christ, uh, Gentile Christians. And there are uh, no questions answered about Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and how they're supposed to relate um, and how that kind of arises in uh, later epistles, especially in Paul's writing, Ephesians and um, Romans, for example. Uh, the Christian assembly is still called the synagogue in 2 verse 2, synagogain. And uh, one writer says, the whole scene, in short, is that which appears before us in the earliest chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. So um, from this, again, I've re referenced Moo's commentary. He dates it somewhere around um, 45 to 47, AD 45 to 47. He has two reasons. The close connection between James 2 and Paul's preaching about justification by faith. And there's uh, no direct reference to Jew-Gentile relations or the decision that's handed down from the Jerusalem conference. Um, so if, that's, if that date of 45 to 47 is correct, this does make James one of the earliest, if not the earliest, New Testament composition, even predating Paul's stuff. So... Um, and I'm I'm in favor of the early date. That's where I land. Is uh, this this is one of the earliest, um, if not the earliest, uh, Christian New Testament document that we have. Uh, what do you say, Alex? Well, I'm going to take the late date position. So here's a different perspective. Um, James dying in AD 62. That's uh, a common. Uh, position in, in commentaries. I think it's actually a misunderstanding of Eusebius's account of James's martyrdom. Uh, Eusebius actually gives three different sources for James's death. How and when does he die? He cites Clement, he cites Josephus, and he cites Hegesippus. Now, Clement's account has James dying soon after Governor Festus dies. That's in AD 62. So that's where you get that date from in most commentaries. Uh, Eusebius states, however, that he believes Hegesippus's account to be the most accurate, and that's again in his uh, Ecclesiastical History, chap uh, Book Two, Chapter Twenty Three, and following. So the story goes like this: when when Eusebius is quoting Hegesippus, Hegesippus is saying James, this is how he died. He says James was seen as righteous in the sight of all, both by unbelievers and believers. And the Pharisees thought that if James were given the chance to speak to the crowds that he would tell people not to stray after Jesus, be more level-headed about all of this Christian stuff. So they had James stand atop the pinnacle of the temple just a few days before the Passover that year. So a big opportunity. And to the Pharisees' dismay, James proceeded to preach Jesus as the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. <laughs> so, so the Pharisees, they are not pleased, they are shocked, and they order that James be pushed off of the temple. So James, he's thrown from the temple, but he survives the fall. Doesn't kill him. So here at the bottom of the temple, at the, at the base of the temple, he is uh, being stoned. 
And while he's being stoned, James is praying for their forgiveness, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Just like Jesus prayed at the cross, just like Stephen prayed as the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts. Until uh, someone takes a club that is used to beat out laundry, and instead it's used to crush James's skull. So that's how Eusebius dies. That's his martyrdom. And when Eusebius that's how James dies, sorry. <laughs> That's how James died. That's his martyrdom, according to Eusebius, when he's quoting Hegesippus. And according to Hegesippus's account, we learn that Vespasian, Emperor Vespasian, he besieges Jerusalem right after James was killed, like almost immediately. And even though the Jewish-Roman War started in AD 67, Vespasian, he did not siege Jerusalem until AD 70. And when in AD 70 did Vespasian siege Jerusalem? Well, you guessed it, right before the Passover. At the same time, James was martyred. Now, we have this discrepancy then. Why would Clement's account say that James died much earlier, right after Governor Festus died? Well, if you read Clement's account and Josephus' account, both quoted by Eusebius, one can see that there was an attempt to kill James and that was plotted at the time soon after Festus dies. But it was obviously not successful. If you read Hegesippus' account of James's martyrdom, the Pharisees clearly saw James as an ally. They were shocked when he preaches Jesus from the temple pinnacle. But in Clement's account, in Josephus' account, uh, it is not the Pharisees plotting James's death. It is Ananus, who takes the high priesthood upon himself, along with his party of the Sadducees, and he uh, uses the death of Governor Festus as an opportunity to stone James. But that opportunity failed. There were letters written to higher-ups in the Roman government saying Ananus has done this, and Ananus is quickly uh, taken out of position. So the takeaway is this, right? The epistle of James, based off of my reading of Eusebius, it could have been written up to the time of his death. That would be April of AD 70. And seeing as how James writes to the 12 tribes who are in dispersion, more on that in just a minute as the next question, um, and how the audience seems to be first and foremost under severe trial, I would put James's letter somewhere in the AD 66 to AD 70 range. The Jewish-Roman War would be the perfect backdrop, in my opinion, to explain the various trials and details that we see among James's audience and what they were experiencing. So that's my take on when the letter was written. Um, any thoughts there, Nick? Nope. Early date, late date. There you go. So what do you think about the recipients of the letter, Nick? Who received the letter? Who are the 12 tribes of Israel? 1-1 one, one says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion... Uh, my take is this, these are Jewish Christians, <clears throat> probably first-generation Christians, again, working from the early date. Um, the fact that they were Jewish um, is seen, I think, in those, uh, those statements, 12 tribes, dispersion. Um, that's very Jewish in um, import and its background. Um, that they are Christians is seen multiple times. James, throughout the epistle, addresses them as brothers. Um, all throughout the epistle, um, he addresses them as brothers. In addition, the epistle itself, rich with Old Testament allusions, quotes, uh, imagery. These uh, may have been people, uh, some of whom 
had walked with Jesus, heard his teaching, become his disciples. Um, later, they took on the name Christian, and uh, uh, but for several reasons, their love for Christ has perhaps grown cold. Their discipleship uh, may have waned in some areas. And again, these Christians, they were acting no different than the world around them. And so James calls them back up to the lofty standard of Christ. Um, what say you, Alex? Uh, I agree. I think these are Jewish Christians, the 12 tribes in dispersion. Um, I think James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, uh, given that role apparently by the apostles James, John, and Peter themselves, according to uh, Eusebius when he quotes Clement. And you get this impression in Acts 15 that he's an important guy in the Jerusalem church, uh, as well as the other verses you mentioned in the book of Acts. Um, James is in charge there. And this explains perhaps the lack of Gentile Jewish tensions, seeing as how the audience would just be really Jewish Christians, probably from Jerusalem. And their various trials, again, uh, in my mind, are easily explained in the leading up to and commencement of war with Rome in AD 67 through 70, uh, especially considering that uh, Christians from Jerusalem, they all fled Jerusalem during that war. And uh, many of them took refuge in the mountains of Pella. Uh, they fled uh, because of a prophecy that was given to them. Uh, the Lord told them to flee. In fact, you go back and read the synoptics. I think the Lord is telling them to flee when his apostles ask him, when are these stones not going to be left one on top of the other? You just said that. So perhaps these Jewish Christians uh, fled to other places in addition to Pella. Perhaps James's letter was for all of these dispersed tribes of Israel, these Jewish Christians. That's kind of my leaning, my take on that. Um, and we get into the letter and we see that verse 2, they are facing various kinds of trials. And uh, any thoughts on that, Nick? What kinds of trials do you think they were facing? Yeah, so my English standard says uh, uh, they translate it trials of various kinds. And the interesting thing about um, the word trials, or sometimes it's translated temptations, we'll see that the deeper we get into chapter 1, they can be both good and bad, and then come from various sources and various kinds. Uh, we know that the church uh, in the early days was enduring opposition from uh, the Jewish people. Uh, the Jewish leaders in particular uh, were not happy with what was going on with the church. Um, James, various trials here, literally these are many colored trials. Trials of every shade and hue. And again, it's from living the Christian life. Living in allegiance to Christ and uh, again, that, that caused the early church to go heads up with the Jewish leaders um, right from the very beginning of the church. And certainly a uh, decade, decade and a half at the most uh, from the inception of the church, I don't think that has led up. And so here are, are these Christians, and that's they're facing trials, persecution from uh, Jewish sources. Um, what do you think, Alex? We do have some of these trials, I think, described in the letter, uh, though the, not necessarily comprehensive, but uh, there seems to be conflict between rich and poor Christians in the community. Uh, that's producing anger and quarrels among them. 
Anger tends to let the tongue go unbridled, and so we see they're speaking against one another, judging one another, possibly even in legal battles. Uh, all the while, it seems that the orphans and widows among them, they're not being cared for, which perhaps leads to more tension between the rich and poor Christians. Uh, I imagine the stress of these trials would be multiplied even greater if uh, this was in the midst of persecution and dispersion. So, yeah, various kinds of trials. I don't think James is uh, speaking hyperbole there. I think they really they really have plenty on their plate as far as problems go. Now, we have this um, testing of the faith then that's happening because of these trials in verse 3, Nick. So, is the testing of faith by God's causation? Is he making these trials happen so that they'll grow? What do you think? A fundamental theme in the Bible is that God proves the genuineness of one's faith through trials, that our faith is tested in the crucible of trials. And when our faith is tested, it will lead to a faith which is perfect, that is mature. And so these Jewish Christians, no doubt, came to identify with the father of the faith, Abraham. He, it is said, was tested, and that's the verb form for the word trials here in James 1. Uh, way back in Genesis 22, verse 1, he was tested. And he, it, what was found was that he feared God, Genesis 22, verse 12 says. That's what God identifies in him have, since he goes through the trial uh, with uh, uh, the, the call of the sacrifices on Isaac. And so similarly, uh, the Christian knows that God's causing or God's allowing trials will result in a mature faith, a, a complete faith, another way of, of talking about uh, that idea of perfect. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I think uh, when it comes to the test of the faith, God can, whether you want to say he causes it or he allows it to happen, for me it's six of one, half dozen of the other, but uh, yeah, God, and he's, he's using it for uh, his good purposes. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think while God certainly has the right to test our faith, not all testing is from God. Mm -hmm. um, you're right, there are those categories. God can cause it. He can allow it. I think there's a third category where uh, free-willed created beings uh, break out of God's will, and they do what God does not want or allow. So it's another conversation for another time, but just to say there are other supernatural forces at work if we really believe in spiritual warfare and real warfare incurs real losses you know each trial is not by design uh, but god as our designer he can nevertheless make us stronger if we endure so god may not cause our suffering or even allow it but he can make sure our suffering does not go to waste he can use it still for his purposes to transform us and produce a genuine faith. And uh, in the midst of these trials, it sure does help to have wisdom. Now, right. how does God give us wisdom, as James says in verse 5? Yeah, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Uh, and literally what, what um, James says here, he calls God the giving God. We ask of God on a regular basis, and that's uh, communicated there by the present tense uh, verb. Um, so we ask, that's prayer. He hears, that's his habitual practice. And then he gives generously, and he gives without reproach uh, to all his children. you got to ask in faith, 
Uh, we see that in verse 6, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But uh, yeah, generously, without reproach, these are the ways that uh, God gives us wisdom. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, and I think um, as far as how the Christian would go about that, you know, God, first and foremost, he gave them wisdom through the implanted word of Christ, the perfect law of liberty. We'll talk about that later. Uh, secondly, surely James, as an apostle, not one of the twelve, but still an apostle, and great leader of the Jerusalem church, surely he's giving them wisdom from God, while also pointing them back to the wisdom of Scripture. And thirdly, uh, I'll make an argument when we get to chapter 4, that the Holy Spirit dwells among them, and that too can bring them wisdom. If they want this wisdom, James tells them to ask God. But, as you said, it's got to be in faith. What does that mean? They can't be doubting. What exactly in verse 6 do you think they would be doubting, Nick? You know, the Christian must be convicted of something. And what that thing is is actually debated by scholars in their commentary. Some say it is the conviction of God hearing his child cry out and call out in prayer. Others say it is the conviction that God will answer our prayer. Uh, we might sum these uh, two views up as conviction in the promises of God, that God hears and that he answers because he does promise those things. There are still others who say it's the conviction of God's very existence. Uh, I want to call uh, upon first Kings 18 and verse 20 as perhaps illustrative of what James has in mind here. It may be an illusion. He may be alluding to this. First uh, Kings 18, especially verses 20 and following, that's the account of Elijah and the prophets of Baal or Baal, however you want to pronounce it. Elijah asks the people a question. He says, how long will you go limping or wavering between two different opinions? I think that's the idea here in James. Wavering between belief in God and unbelief in God. Wavering between believing that God hears and that God will not hear. Uh, wavering between God answering and God not answering. James is indicating uh, and indicting, really, his readers about wavering between the two different opinions about the character and nature of God. This is double-mindedness and this is instability, and James addresses that in verse 8. So James I think also illustrates what it's like when a Christian is doubtful. This wavering person is pictured as a wave in the ocean, tossed, uh, driven and tossed by the wind. Uh, the idea is of the constant change and the shifting of the water. It's ever in motion. It's never firm. And so, again, it's a picture of one who doubts in prayer. His soul is turbulent. His mind is torn asunder in two different directions. In fact, he's literally double-souled. That's what it literally is there uh, for that word double-minded, that phrase double-minded in verse 8. You're trying to balance on the fence between faith and unbelief. And I think that's what's at the heart here of James talking about doubting. Um, what do you think, Alex? You know, I can't help but wonder if they're wavering and doubting, which James sees as the antithesis of asking in faith, if that might have something to do with the other passage about their faith problems in chapter 2, uh, namely that they have faith without works. Uh, perhaps they're thinking, will I help my brother? Will I forgive my brother? Does he deserve it? Does it matter? Perhaps James is alluding to the scenario where one is asking for wisdom 
for themselves, of course, uh, but doubting or perhaps unconvicted whether or not they will use whatever God gives them to help their fellow brother. Uh, James 4.3 says, You ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so I think an unconvicted Christian who does not know whether they want to or are willing to help their brother in need, uh, I think that's the double-minded Christian when he asks God for good things. Uh, You shouldn't expect to get it if it's purely for selfish ambition in the midst of a suffering Christian community. Uh, Any thoughts, Nick? Certainly asking a miss, that's for sure. Right. Verses 9 and 10, James goes through the trouble of reminding both poor and rich Christians, both of them, uh, why would he do that? Why would he point those groups out? James is going to have a lot to say in this epistle about the relationship between the rich and the poor. The congregation or congregations to which James is writing, uh, no doubt they're composed of both uh, wealthy and poor Christians, the affluent and the afflicted, are not getting along and perhaps threatening the unity of the body. And so that seems to be uh, at least one of the reasons why James is reminding both the rich and the poor in this uh, these opening verses. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I agree. Additionally, uh, it does little good to pit one against the other. James says they both have glory, and their glory does not depend on what they have or don't have. So both groups are necessary And they both have uh, problems that James will try to correct. Now, in verse 12, James says, All of these trials you have to endure so that you can receive the crown of life. Nick, what do you think is the crown of life? This verse is uh, strikingly similar to the words of Jesus in Revelation 2 and verse 10. I think the point for these Christians, and even reaching all the way to Christians today, is that faithfulness to God will result in life, specifically, I have in mind here, eternal life. Note the progression also, how there's pressure or temptation, trials. That comes along, uh, steadfastness works its full effect in the Christian, and then life is bestowed by God. Life is bestowed on upon the, the lover of God by the life-giving God is, uh, I guess, kind of a uh, fancy way of saying it, I suppose. But anyway, that's that seems to be the progression here as you go through it. Um, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think your reference to Revelation 2.10 is worth reading. It says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There are multiple touch points, as you can probably hear between Revelation 2.10 and James chapter 1. Uh, the word for tested, it's the same in James uh, 1.13 as in Revelation 2.10, and, and we'll get to that in the next question. Uh, both references talk about suffering, both talk about the need to endure, and both have the crown of life as the reward for the Christian. Notice how the passage says they will receive the crown of life. That's future tense, as opposed to they have received the crown of life. The Christian has already received the salvation of their soul and forgiveness of their sins. So what exactly is the crown of life if we have yet to receive it? It doesn't say to hang on to it, but to receive it. So I think the crown of life is actually a specific reference to our resurrected body. But what must be done before 
we receive that great promise, we must endure whatever testing may come. Nick, any thoughts there? Good connection. You know, we have a connection, though, between testing and tempting from verse 2 and 3 and verses 12 and 13. Nick, talk to us for a second about the difference between testing and tempting. Yeah, so specifically, verse 2 with the trials, and then uh, verses 12 and 13, trial and tempted, um, uh, to, to address those words there. They're actually the same word in the original. Um, it's it's kind of like as our good friend Hank Hanegraaff likes to say, the Bible answer man. Words are not univocal, they are equivocal. Uh, and and that's that just means that the, the meaning of a word is not static, that is always the same. It is dynamic, driven by the context in which it is used. And that's the case here uh, with the Greek term that's being used here. Uh, periasmos is translated trials in verse 2 and verse 12, and it's translated as tempted in verses 13 and 14. Both the noun and verb forms are present here. Uh, Trials, it seems, uh, the word that's used here, has a broad meaning. On the one hand, it carries the meaning of temptation or uh, solicitation to sin, and hence temptations, is how it's translated often in that kind of context. On the other hand, it carries the meaning of afflictions from persecution, hence trials when it's translated in that context. So uh, these Greek-speaking Jewish Christians would have known and identified this. And this is important to note since it has bearing upon understanding this passage. God does allow and does cause trials of various kinds to come upon his children to test the genuineness of their faith. However, God, who is free from any and every evil thing, does not and cannot tempt his children to sin. And that's a that's a key distinction there that I, that needs to be made in this context, especially as this word is being used here. Uh, so that's what I see here. Alex, what do you see? Yeah, I agree. Um, in addition to the trial and testing with the Greek word uh, perasmon, uh, there is also the testing of your faith that we see in verse 3. And that's the Greek word uh, dokimion, and that refers to the process or means of determining the genuineness of something. This word is often applied to what results from purifying metal. In other words, a genuine product. It's the same word used in 1 Peter 1.17 where he talks about the testing of your faith, even though it's more precious than gold, though refined by fire. It's important to distinguish, as you said, between testing, trial, temptation, uh, and even in the Greek, between perazzo and dokimion. In this context, uh, we see that trials may come, but they're not always from God. Uh, Sometimes they are, like Job, and James is going to mention Job later on in the book. Uh, Temptations to sin may come, but they are never from God. James makes that very clear. But when trial and temptation are endured by the Christian, you then will stand perfect and complete, and your reward will come. And that reward, it is always from God. So I think James does go through special lengths to distinguish between these different types of trials and temptations and testing. Uh, Nick, we do have this uh, 
interesting line of thought about sin and giving birth to sin, lust conceiving. You know, in that process of lust giving birth and conceiving uh, sin, do you think there are spiritual forces involved in our temptations? We're, we're looking at verses 14 and 15. Right. Um, and so each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so, specifically to the question of spiritual beings, spiritual forces involved in temptation, yes, I, I believe that they are involved in our temptations, but I think you have to go elsewhere to demonstrate that. Because here, it seems to me, James' focus is on temptation as it begins in the heart of a person. Uh, the three great enemies of the Christian are the world, the devil, and the flesh. And I think James' emphasis here is on the flesh. The thing that we want or the thing that we desire is what lures and entices us. And the words here are interesting. Lured, we would recognize as a fishing term. And so it was. Uh, like when a fish is taken from the water when the hook is sunk deep in its gullet. Mm. Um, and then enticed is uh, a word that's connected to the seductress who would try to seduce a man to elicit sexual conduct. So that thing we desire, it lures and it entices us. In fact, there's a sense in which all temptation begins with us, even when spiritual beings or the world are involved. Neither of these hostile forces would tempt us with something we don't desire, right? That doesn't make sense. They wouldn't use something. Right. They would use that which we want. And so, again, James emphasizing here the nature of the personal struggle of the Christian against those evil desires we have in the flesh. Uh, my take, Alex, what say you? Yeah, I think uh, in addition to what you said, and, and that was well said, James also seems to be playing off of perhaps the creation narrative as well. Um, he says, when lust conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth, uh, Greek word there, apo apokuo, uh, apakuo. <laughs> it brings yeah. forth death. And the, Easy for you to say. Yeah, that's right. And the <clears throat> exercise of his will, though it says later in verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. Same word, apakueo, <clears throat> by the word of truth. So just as uh, God created everything by the word in Genesis chapter 1, so to Jesus, as the word of truth embodied, he gave us new birth to rescue us from sin and death. It's hard not to think of Adam and Eve and the serpent when reading this verse, but James and his audience, he knows the serpent tempted Eve. They know the serpent tempted Eve and that spiritual beings are involved in our temptations. But as you said, he sidesteps that. And he focuses on the element of the flesh, bringing home the deep responsibility that we each still have for our own personal choices. And uh, I think that's it's significant. It's it, that, that part can't be ignored or written off because of these other things, the world, Satan, as you mentioned before. Now, he goes on, he starts connecting things. He talks about good gifts being from God. What good gifts would James have in mind? And he also says in the midst of that, don't be deceived. What would they, how would they be deceived? Talk about that for a second, Nick. Yeah, verse 16, do not be deceived, my brothers. I think the deception there probably relates to that foregoing discussion about the source of temptation. Don't be deceived. Don't get it twisted. 
about where temptation all that comes from, mm-hmm. where your desire it lies in your desires, in other words. And then, uh, interestingly, um, there are as we come to verse seventeen, um, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. The double use of gift here, actually, two different words are used for the same English word, gift. Uh, dosis and dorema. The former word is used with the adjective good here, and it describes the act of the act of giving, which God en- engages in. And then uh, the other gift uh, from God is perfect. Again, uh, the idea here being it is complete; it lacks nothing. And so, it's interesting to note that in the original language. The phrase, every good gift, every perfect gift, is what's called perfect hexameter. Very, uh, what, poetic in in form. And what this may indicate is that this is some kind of poetic line that James is using to communicate what should be well-known to his readers, a well-known principle. Perhaps even using a line from a well-known hymn that was sung by the church Mm. to remind them about who God is. Perhaps. I think that's the, the most we can say about that um, uh, in terms of uh, it could have been something that they sang on a regular basis. And so James just plugs it in here. Listen, Paul does it too. He's not he's not uh, uh, adverse to, to using what the church sang uh, on a, perhaps on a weekly basis uh, in order to plug in and teach them what they already know. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God above. So that's a bit of what I see here. What say you, Alex? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting to think about uh, the apostles reaching into their hymn book, if you will, (laughs) and putting it into their theological teaching. I think that's good stuff. James also may be referring back to verse 5 again uh, about the good gift from above being wisdom, and this would later connect to the discussion in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, about heavenly wisdom from above versus earthly wisdom from below. So the good gift, the perfect gift might be wisdom. Uh, if we link the uh, deception language, don't be deceived, brothers, back to creation, then we have another glimpse of Adam and Eve, uh, especially Eve, thinking that the fruit looked good for food, delightful to the eyes, and desirable for making one wise, that link back to wisdom again. So maybe the Christians are using earthly wisdom about how to handle their resources, how to handle the gifts of God during troubling times, and they are being deceived by their selfish ambition, and they are being blind to their brother's needs, especially the needs of the widows and orphans among them, which uh, was always there, but especially common during wartime as well. Uh, Verse 17, this good gift from God, it comes from above, who is the Father of lights. Why do you think God is called the Father of lights in verse 17, Nick? Could be to emphasize God as creator, uh, creator of sun, moon, stars, all the lights in the sky. Um, he's author or father of the physical lights that we see in the sky. More than that, God is light. First John 1 verse 5 emphasizes that. And if there would be any light whatsoever, it must find its origin in God. He's the source of light. Um, literally, it's interesting. Uh, James writes, God is father of the lights. Uh, so there's some specificity here. And given the context in which this is found, I'm thinking specifically of verse uh, 18 uh, with uh, uh 
God being pictured as the Father who brings forth and begets us Christians by the true word, I think this all kind of harmonizes. Inasmuch as we are the light of the world, according to Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 14, who reflect the light, capital L, of the world, as Jesus calls himself in John 8, verse 12. Right. God is our Father who brings us forth as his children. Right. Uh, that's uh, what I see here. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. In addition, Paul says that we, as Christians, appear as lights in the world among a crooked and perverse generation. That's Philippians 2.15. He also says that we are sons of light and sons of day. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.5. 5. By the way, if you want to hear more about Philippians and Thessalonians, uh, look into our Swordplay archives. We've covered both of those books already. That's right. Now, seeing as how the Old Testament and the ancient Near East in general seeing as how they're fond of speaking about the gods, these other deities, these other supernatural beings, they speak about them in terms of the stars, the sun, moon, and stars. It's fitting, I think, that the Christian, the true inheritors of the cosmos and partakers of the divine nature, that we should be called stars, both in reality through our sanctification in the spirit and in anticipation of our resurrection bodies. In a theological word, uh, one could call this theosis. Any thoughts there, Nick? Uh, No, good connection here. Uh, So the rest of verse 17, with whom, talking about Father of Lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Um, And by the way, just a sidebar here, talking about Christian hymns and stuff like that. We actually there's a line from one of our songs that we pull from this verse. Uh, Great is thy faithfulness. There's a line in there that says, uh, "There is no shadow of turning with thee." That's where we get it from, right here. There it is. Um, so, with that phrase in mind, is there something else, Alex, that would have variation or shifting shadow? Yeah, that's right. What is our God being compared or contrasted to, there are things that have variation and shifting shadow, uh, specifically the sun and the moon, and we see that every day. James makes sure to distinguish between the created things and the creator. Sun and moon have shifting shadows. They cannot be equated as being on the same level as Yahweh. That's what's being communicated here. Yahweh has no shifting shadows. Especially if we're talking about the ancient Near East, you know, the sun deities, the moon deities, they cannot be considered as being in the same class as Yahweh or as Jesus. Our God has no shifting shadow or variation. Uh, the temperament of these other gods, these other deities, it's, they're shifty. They're unstable. Yahweh is not like them. He is entirely above them and separate from them. He's the creator, and he is constant and reliable. And that's, I think, the takeaway for uh, no variation or shifting shadow for for our God. Now, Nick, uh, how, in verse 18, were we brought forth by the word of truth? It says we were, but how do you mm-hmm. think that happened? The, uh, the verb itself that's used here um, is what's called an aorist tense verb. Don't want to lose you in the language here. All that means is... It points to a specific snapshot event in the past. And so I says to myself, self, what event could James point to 
<laughs> that would be a snapshot event in the past which every Christian engages in, which is symbolic of a new birth. Hmm. Hmm. I know. Baptism. Right. Or immersion. Right. In fact, it may be that James is identifying Christian baptism as the good and perfect gift, or one of the good and perfect gifts, that comes from the good and perfect God. And so um, I think also of uh, Paul in Ephesians 5 about how um, been cleansed by the washing of the word and all that. So, yeah, I think there's, there's precedent here. Maybe James is establishing the precedent of talking about being brought forth by the word of truth and how that is connected to even our baptisms. Right. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I agree. And there's uh, an interesting Greek note that the only two places in the New Testament where this word shows up, uh, bringing forth, giving birth, um, it's right here in James, verse 15 and verse 18. And I noted earlier, uh, this place is the contrast between sin being brought forth from lust and the Christian being brought forth by the word of truth. It reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how do we share in that resurrection so that we can be brought forth, be born again? As you said, it's first in baptism. We get that from Romans 6. But later... It's also in our bodily resurrection. We get that from Romans 8. So a lot going on here within the subtext. And the the audience, I think, is catching what James is throwing. Any thoughts, uh, Nick, about also in verse 18 where it says, uh, Christians are the first fruits of God's creatures. What do you think? As his children, we are a kind of first fruits. For Christians today, 2,000 years removed from this writing, that the concept of first fruits um, probably lost on us. I mean, that's a very agrarian term. I suppose if you work as a, as a farmer or in agriculture, that you may make the connection here. Um, but a, a predominantly Jewish audience, Jews who under the law had a feast of first fruits in which the first and best of the harvest was offered to God, according to Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14. I think they would have made a connection here, a pretty strong connection of what uh, shadow and substance, perhaps. Right. That a saved Christian who has been begotten by the true word has become a kind of first fruit to God, set apart holy, consecrated for offering to God, even as Paul talks about in Romans 12, verse 1. We are living sacrifices. The harvest of God, it began at Pentecost. Acts 2 Mm. talks about this. And it continues even to today, but I think these Jewish converts who were the first to hope in Christ were the first fruits of that harvest. And in a very unique way. So I think that may be what James is talking about here. What do you think? Agreed. Uh, Again, James may still be alluding as well to the Garden of Eden, uh, which was lost through sin, but now is being recovered through Christ and the church as new creatures brought forth by the word, the beginning of the restoration of Eden, God's family, his home, with all of his good creation. He looks at it and says, this is good. Uh, Let's see, verse 19 Mm -hmm. James says that we're to be quick to hear, 
what do you suppose that they are listening to that they are to be quick to hear what what do you think nick so uh, this statement this phrase is bookended by uh, we've already seen in verse 18 the word of truth or the true word and then also in verse 21 about the implanted word uh, so i think when it comes to this, that those bookend statements about the word, it seems best to understand the swiftness of hearing to be in regards to the word of God. Sure. It is the word of God, which is truth, and it saves our souls that they are to listen to and be quick to hear. Certainly every person, Christian or not, should be quick to hear the word of the Lord. Um, and it just seems like sometimes those who are not Christians, they close their ears to it. Even some Christians, they are slow to hear the word of the Lord or even reject it themselves. And that's an unfortunate thing. James exhorts these Christians then and also Christians today. No, we need to be quick to hear the word of the Lord. What do you think, Alex? That's right. Contextually, James is talking about the word of God, which is going to be the source of wisdom that they need to work out their problems. This idea of hearing the word will be in connection to receiving the implanted word in the next few verses. So let's mm-hmm. get into that. It says that in verse 21, um, the receiving of the word implanted, uh, that word is able to save your souls. Now, I thought he was writing to Christians, Nick. Aren't they already saved? What does this mean? Well, I think that that plant imagery that's used here, the implanted word. I think the plant imagery is instructive. The word has been planted in the hearts of these Christians, and and a primarily Jewish audience would have been raised with the sacred writings, and so the word of God would have been planted in them. And by receiving the word, the gospel, it continues to germinate. It continues to grow in us. It produces good fruit. It leads us further toward the final deliverance, as it were, the the full and final salvation of God, which will be at the resurrection and all that. So, in other words, a Christian must never think that he or she is done with the word once they've obeyed the gospel. There is still room to grow, still room to mature. And I think that's what James is talking about here. Uh, What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Um, The primary concern of James is Uh, not their initial salvation, but rather their preservation and continuance in the word so that they do not wither away, continuing on that plant imagery. They don't want to wither away before the harvest. They're supposed to be the first fruits. In this sense, they must continue to receive the word then, as we see in verse 21. And this theme, I think, continues through the rest of the book of James. Uh, We'll see the question, can that faith save one without works? James says, no, they must continue to work. Chapter 2, verse 14. Now, they didn't receive the word by works, but now that they have it, they must continue in faith through works. Uh, Can we decide if our brother's works are sufficient? James will say, no, there's only one judge and lawgiver who can save or destroy. That's chapter 4, verse 12. Well, if if a brother's in error, are we to correct him? James will say, absolutely, that correction may save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. He'll say that in chapter 5, verse 20, the end of the book. James has a lot to say about salvation, and I think he presents a clear case of working out of our faith, working out of our salvation with one another through perseverance, while at the same time, though, trusting the one who brought us forth, who saved us. It's not a... James versus the Apostle Paul scenario. And I think that's what Luther struggled with. 
But this uh, presentation by James of faith is complete. It's perfect. It's just fine. And I think the Apostle Paul would agree with it. Any thoughts there, Nick? No, I concur. Well, this implanted word, uh, just a quick minute on that, verses 21 and 22. What exactly is the implanted word again, Nick? I think it's a callback to verse 18, the word of truth. I think it's God's word. That's right. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And this reminds me of the, uh, the good soil, what the good soil looks like in the parable of the sower. Uh, Luke 8.15 says, But the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. I think James wants them to have good soil in their hearts, and that goes beyond just the initial hearing and receiving. It also has to uh, be something they hold on to, bear fruit with, persevere. Now we get into another illustration right after this about a mirror verses 23 and 24. Nick, what do you think is the meaning of the mirror metaphor? Yeah. Um, the, the man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror uh, before he looks at himself goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Um, you know, you mentioned this is a, another metaphor. Hey, if one's good, then several are better, right? And James, That's right. James is agreeable to that. Uh, so here's this illustration, right? Picture a person looking intently at his face in a mirror. He can see the various features of his face, eyes, nose, mouth, cheeks. Perhaps he sees some blemishes, a flaw, maybe some dirt, things which need correction. And after such careful scrutiny, he goes into the other room to fetch what is needed to make those corrections, except he has forgotten what he saw. And indeed, he's forgotten what his face looks like. He can't even remember what the face he was born with looks like. It's absurd. What, have I gone into the twilight zone here? And James says, that's what it's like when you hear the word only and you do not do it. You don't put it into practice. You look into the perfect law and you see what you are to be like. You're to be like Christ. Any flaws or character defects are, uh, defects are found out. Any moral filth is identified. Your overall character is derived from what you see when you look into the perfect law. But as soon as the hearing is over and the doing should begin, you turn away from the mirror and you forget what you are to look like. You forget Christ. How right. absurd is that? And I think that's what James is getting at here with this mirror metaphor is don't be a hearer only. Do what it says. Right. And there's a blessing in doing the word. Uh, there's the beatitude of the word doer, right? That's right. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's what James is talking about here. What do you think, Alex? I agree. And there are also other mirror metaphors in the New Testament that may be driving a similar theological message. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. Uh, Paul uses this again in Second Corinthians 3.18. He says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. This... I believe is the process of sanctification, being transformed into the image of Christ, our theosis. When we look into the mirror of Christ, it may at first look dim. We aren't quite there yet. We don't reflect him clearly. But over time, 
We are being transformed into his likeness. And it will one day not even be us looking at the mirror of Christ in us anymore, but we will see him face to face. It reminds me of Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue the peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. James gives us a clear reminder that unless you are both hearers and doers of the word, you will never see Christ formed within you. But you will forget what you even look like at all. And I like what you said, Nick. What that really means is you forget Christ. Now, this law that we are to look into, James says it's the perfect law of liberty in verse 25. What is the perfect law of liberty, Nick? Has that been uh, spelled out for us? Is that a book behind Revelation I forgot about? The perfect law of liberty? (laughs) What is that? Yeah, uh, I think this is a connection again to the Word, uh, verse 23, the implanted Word of verse 21, even all the way back to verse 18, the Word of Truth. It's another way in which James speaks of God's Word. It is perfect because it is a perfect gift from the perfect Father. And so uh, I think, again, just another way that James speaks of the Word. What do you think? That's right. And when we talk about the Word of God, we're not just meaning Scripture, the written Word, but we mean the embodied word, the Logos, which became human flesh, Jesus Christ. In the previous verse about the mirror, I mentioned 2 Corinthians 3.18, but if you backed up one verse to 2 Corinthians 3.17, we see this. It says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Interesting. James has this same idea about liberty, the perfect law of liberty. When Christ is being formed in you, then you become a living embodiment of the Word of God, and you then act out of that transformation. Uh, You referenced uh, Romans 12 earlier. Yeah, be transformed by the renewing of your mind uh, so that you may know what the will of God is, that which is good, pleasing, and perfect. What you do in that transformation will seem free and liberating because your new normal has become so much closer to what Christ is. Uh, And and out of that transformation, you love your neighbor as yourselves, Uh, you settle disputes, you care for the needy, you bridle your tongue, you pray for wisdom. This kind of man, James calls blessed in what he does. And notice how James says that one who looks intently at the perfect law of liberty, the Greek for looks intently, is the same Greek used in John chapter 20, verses 5 and 11, when first Peter and then Mary stoop over, bend over to look inside the empty tomb of Jesus. Looking intently upon the perfect law of liberty means to look intently at Christ himself, risen from the dead, working through the Spirit now to shape and form us in our spirit so that we need no law other than to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, Nick, loving your neighbor as yourself, surely this would include caring for widows and orphans. Do you think in verse 27 that was a reality for them? Were there many widows and orphans among the Christians that James writes to? You know, I don't don't know the exact figures, um, but I do know that God has always been concerned for the orphans and the widows. In the law, the Israelites were instructed not to reap the edges of their fields um, or go back for a sheaf that they left in the field or beat the olives from their trees uh, because there were the poor. There were the sojourn of the fatherless, the widow. You can read Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 21. 
to, to see those uh, commands given. And so when the Israelites neglected to care for the fatherless and for the widows, God pronounced judgment and he called for repentance. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 16 and 17, Micah chapter 6 verse 8 are examples of God's call to his people for repentance and they're indicted for not caring for the orphans and widows. So God has always been concerned about the orphans and the widows and under the Christian dispensation, this has not gone away and James reminds his brothers of this important principle. Uh, what do you think, Alex? I think that's right. And There are always going to be the poor among us, as Jesus says in the Gospels. Uh, there are always going to be widows and orphans. In fact, the first church dispute was about the widows being overlooked in Acts chapter 6. And if I'm right about the backdrop to James's letter and the audience's dispersion being the Jewish-Roman war or the leading up to that war, then there are undoubtedly among them a greater portion of orphans and widows as collateral damage perhaps from that war. Uh, these most weak and vulnerable among them seem to be the first also to be forgotten in the midst of Christian disputes. And James rebukes them for that. He rebukes them throughout the letter. Now, that would never happen to us, right? We wouldn't let disputes distract us from what's most important, would we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, last question, Nick. <clears throat> James says, uh, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. What does it mean to be unstained by the world? Verse 27, Nick. This is a call <clears throat> for Christians to maintain personal purity in a world of sin. Uh, the word here, to keep, me it was a military term, and it was used for when a prisoner was kept under guard by soldiers. And so James calls his Christian brothers to fortify themselves, to be ever watchful for the pollutants of the world. Uh, and especially in the context that we saw back in 14 and 15 of this chapter, verses 14 and 15, um, the idea of temptation. Temptation is, is around us, and the flesh is constantly, we're at battle with it. So, um, and, and it's interesting, again, the, the, the wording of this, it's a present tense infinitive, and, and that carries the way to something like, keep on keeping on being free from every spot and defilement and all that. So it's, this should be the Christian's habitual practice to be free from <clears throat> the stain from the world and the pollutants of the world. This is more than dirt, of course. We're not talking about something uh, physical so much as we're speaking about the moral purity that we are to have. Um, and in this fallen world, it is full of the dirt, dust, grime, grease, slime, sludge of sin, which can get all over our white robes of righteousness that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. But uh, a life which seeks to imitate Christ's moral uprightness and to be free from the vices of uh, humanity, that is what, what uh, a pure, undefiled religion looks like, a worthy religion with God. Let me just say this also. Um, I know people like to emphasize, well, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Actually, what James says is, well, you know, it's both. You need your relationship with God and with Christ, but this is also religion, pure and faultless or pure and undefiled religion before God. 
So I, I think we need to be careful. You know, we, we see these bumper stickers. We see hear these catchphrases that people throw out there from time to time. Are they biblical? And when it comes to it's not a religion, it's a relationship, I understand the sentiment. I'm just not agreeing with that being biblical. <laughs> uh, so um, I agree. we got to watch out for the, the formality and legalism and all that stuff. But there is, there is such a thing as pure and undefiled religion. And James talks about it, we need to get behind it because this is part of it is keeping yourself unstained from the world. So I will get off of my soapbox. Alex, what do you have to say? You know, I think that's a good um, final statement to close the episode with. I think that was well said, Nick. And, um, you know, it, it's important to ask people what they mean uh, by what they say. And, of course, when we say religion, what we mean is what James says. You know, we have to work out of that relationship, practice what we preach, and without that, our faith is dead. And that's what we'll get more into next week in Chapter 2, Faith Without Works is Dead. So look forward to that next week. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Nick, what do we have as a reminder for our audience? Yeah, so um, you can find the podcast in uh, a couple different places. Go into the iTunes uh, store or go into the Google Play Music store. <clears throat> Search Swordplay, you'll find the, the podcasts and those, those podcasts in those respective places. Also, if you can't get enough of the podcast, you want a more in-depth look at the book of James. I've actually written a commentary on the book of James. It's available in my blog, lifefromthepulpit.wordpress.com. L-I-F-E from the pulpit.wordpress.com is where you can find that. Just click on the right-hand side, James. You'll have the entire index there. Uh, Alex, if folks have a question and they want us to answer it live on the podcast, where can they send it? That's right. Send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, and we appreciate you tuning in, and we'll see you next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.